The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Let's, uh, let's talk about um, a dysfunctional marriage. Let's, let's start with that. Um, there was... The... No, like not yours. Not yours. Um, so the, there was this wife whose husband um, faced uh, trial after trial, setback after setback, hardship after hardship. It was just pretty unrelenting in his life. And, um, and it was, it was of, of, of such gravity in his life that there were a lot of people in his life saying um, that God had brought this on him. And uh, that, that God wasn't cutting him a break at all, that God even had it out for him. And so um, his wife, I said it was a dysfunctional marriage, his wife came to him and her solution was this. Curse God and die. It's a great marriage. So she's really saying, just, just get it over with. Just bring the suffering to an end. And uh, his response, I don't recommend this to any husbands, his response uh, was to call her a foolish woman and to ignore her counsel. Now, some of you may recognize that little anecdote from the book of, the book of Job. And uh, really, no other section of the Bible says more to us about suffering and trials and hardship and how to get a right perspective on those things and how to have the right attitude in the face of them uh, than the book of Job. And no one really, other than Jesus himself, is uh, more faithful, more enduring, more steadfast in the face of trials than Job. And uh, there's a lot for us to hear in, in how Job responded to what he went through, a lot for us to hear in the text today about all that he experienced. And as we continue to think about in this series, um, how we're, we're seeking to be made ready, <clears throat> God's trying to make us ready for something, the big thing that he wants to do, and again, we've talked about that corporately as a church. We have some ideas about what that means for us. Uh, we have uh, maybe some ideas that this could apply also in our lives as individuals or as families. And we're thinking, what's the big thing that God might have for us that he's making us ready for right now? And, just, and, and, just, and let me ask this. Tell me if this isn't true as you think about this. Every time I talk about the big thing that God wants to do, we always think that's going to be a good thing. Is that true? Oh, God's getting ready to bless me. Something good is coming. He's making me ready for it. Uh, but honestly, it might not be a good thing. That the big thing that's coming your way might not be something awesome and something you actually want. But we need to be no less ready for that lest we be like Job's wife who is a foolish person to think that only good things come to us in this life. Because God often chooses a more difficult path for us, doesn't he? You don't want to say amen. But it's true. 
God often chooses a more difficult path for us and we should be ready for that too. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, really you're called, you're called to steadfastly endure trials and setbacks. And that's what we're gonna go after today. We're gonna read the text as we go, so let's start with prayer. And then we'll start working through this, this chapter. Uh, God, no doubt as we look into this matter of uh, trials and setbacks in our lives and the lives of others uh, that we love, uh, Father, we know there's going to be so much pain um, associated with all of this, just talking about it even, uh, that it can bring us back to old wounds and, and maybe remind us of things that are going on in our own lives right now. And so, Father, I pray that we would have grace uh, within us, grace for one another, as we seek your truth uh, in these moments from your word. And this I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, if you're to steadfastly endure trials and setbacks, let's start with this. Establish strong personal disciplines beforehand. The, the beforehand is so important. Before I ever get to the place where I'm going through a difficult season, I want to make sure that there are some personal disciplines in my life that are going to get me and keep me in a good place when I face the difficult season. Uh, first five verses here, <clears throat> Job 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Uh, think, um, think Donald Trump with godly character. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually, continually. It was the pattern of his life. Uh, praising God, worshiping the Lord, reading his word, knowing his word, living that out in his life. The, these first verses, before we get into the entire narrative of what Job is about, is to establish that he was a godly and sincere man, that he was a man of integrity, passionate about his walk with the Lord. And we need to understand that the disciplines that he's going through, not just religious ritual for him, but flowing from a heart of love and devotion to his God. It's his faith that takes center stage in this narrative. Not his works, not his actions. Job would later be called a, the servant of God by God himself, that they were in a relationship with one another. And everything that Job does and says flows out of that relationship. And if the pattern of your life, especially in times of prosperity and blessing, 
is not marked by these personal disciplines flowing from a love relationship with God, then what would make you think that you're going to be able to establish those in the midst of a difficult season? We need to have strong personal disciplines in the word, in prayer, in worship as an expression of our love to God so that we can ensure that we're in a good place when the trial comes. That we have the strength within us by the power of God's Holy Spirit to steadfastly endure. You see... It's so important that we determine what we believe about God before we face the trials. Or else the trials will dictate and determine what we believe about God. Establish strong personal disciplines beforehand and then this, recognize the unseen battle that's being waged. There are Uh, Things that we see and experience and then there's some things that we don't that are still no less going on. And uh, right now the thing that we see is that we're in this room together and uh, I'm up front and I have God's word in front of us and we're hearing the teaching of God's word together. That's what we see. That's what we're experiencing. It's it's part of the material world uh, around us and And in verses six and seven, we're actually getting a peek behind the veil that separates the material from the immaterial world. Take a look at it with me now, six and seven. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God here are referenced to angelic beings. Um, Obviously, from what happens here, that could be um, those who are still serving God, so good angels, and uh, those who are uh, demons who who, uh, rebelled against God. But the sons of God... Angelic messengers came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, like the Lord didn't know. Of course he did. Uh, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. I've been I've been patrolling. I've been going around the earth. I've been taking a look at everything that's going on. So God and Satan are having this conversation and we would admit that that doesn't seem to exactly be our frame of reference, not something we think about every day, is that while we're down here doing whatever we're doing and all the things that we're seeing, that there's something else going on behind the veil of the material world that we live in. In the immaterial world, we could call it the physical world and the spiritual world, but there's something else going on. We would be so naive to think that as we're here, hearing the teaching of God's word, that Satan in his patrolling around the world, that he isn't thinking of a way to disrupt the thing that's going on right now. And that while we see this going on, a preacher bringing God's word and a bunch of people listening to it, there's something else going on behind the veil to keep you from hearing it. That's Satan's whole M.O., is to keep us from the things of God. There are forces at work in this world that we are only vaguely aware of. In fact, in chapter four, verse 15, Job's friends show up and they start having this conversation about all that's going on in Job's life and 
Eliphaz, his, his one friend, says to him in the midst of this, in the midst of our conversation, it says this in chapter four, verse 15, a spirit, a spirit glided past my face and the hairs of my flesh stood on end. I mean, hashtag creepy, right? Hashtag also cool. There's something else. And even Eliphaz, his friend, senses that something else is going on. That, that in the midst of this normal conversation between two friends, that there, there are spirit beings present who are affecting what's going on. There's an unseen battle being waged. And this isn't, by the way, the only place in the scriptures where we see this. Uh, let me give you some evidence. Now, there's lots of places where angelic messengers uh, interact with us in the physical world. I could show you lots of examples of that, but I'm more interested in what's going on behind the veil when we don't see them, but they are definitely involved. So let me give you a couple more examples of this. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 uh, says this, and this is in the apocalyptic section of the book of Daniel. So by this time, Daniel's receiving all these visions from the Lord that are eventually gonna become scripture to us that are gonna tell us about uh, the last days and uh, even the coming of Christ initially and then the last days. So Daniel ten thirteen says this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, uh, that's a very powerful demon of some sort, okay? The prince of the kingdom of Persia, withstood me 21 days. The me there is an angelic messenger that's being sent by God to Daniel to give him the apocalyptic messages that he's gonna then deliver uh, to us, okay, through the scriptures. And so, so this angelic messenger is trying to get there, but he can't get there. He's, he's, being, he's being opposed by this powerful demon uh, called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, withstood me 21 days, but then Michael shows up Michael's like um, arch, he's an archangel, okay, he's, he's, like, um, he, he's like a superhero angel. He shows up at really critical times, and, and uh, Michael's pretty amazing all on his own uh, by the power of, of God in him. So uh, Michael, one of the chief princes, an archangel, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And as the whole thing played out, uh, Michael was able to uh, dispatch this other demon, this prince of Persia, the messenger angel was able to get through to Daniel. And so you see that from Daniel's perspective, Daniel's just being a faithful messenger of God, trying to, trying to get a word from God and deliver to God's people. He's just like in his study, trying to get a word from God so that he can write that down and deliver to the people. That's all anyone sees on, on this side of the veil. And, and, and yet there's so much more going on behind the scenes. You want another example? All right, here's another one. Uh, this is in the New Testament book of Jude, uh, verse nine. And it says this, the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. Now this is the only time we have this little tidbit of information. And, and we know that just before the children of Israel went across the Jordan River and into the promised land, Moses' time was done and he went up onto the mountain and uh, he was gonna die there and he went up alone. And uh, he dies up on the mountain. He gets a chance to look into the promised land but can't go into it. Joshua and the armies and the people of Israel ready to cross over. And, and so Moses dies. That's the part we see. Moses going up the mountain, Moses dying the people of Israel getting ready to cross the Jordan, going to, going to Canaan. That's the part we see. Now you can imagine that the children of Israel, they're like, this is Moses. We're not leaving his body on any mountain. 
We're gonna go up there and get the body. We're gonna bring it down. We're gonna cross the Jordan with the body. We're gonna properly bury this body. And, and we're gonna honor this man who led us through the wilderness out of, out of Egypt, right? Does that not seem reasonable? Is that not something we would do? But now you understand that if that had happened, how crazy it would have been in Israel. And people building a shrine to it and lighting candles and going there and honoring this mere man who was used by God. And the focus would have been off of Yahweh and onto Moses. That's, so, so listen, so now there's this whole spiritual battle going on behind where, where Satan wants to take the body and give it to the children of Israel so they can cross the Jordan and make a shrine and get the eyes off of God. And Michael's like, uh, no way. I'm here to fight you for the body. And of course, God won the battle and the body was never found and so much more, all that to say, with both those examples and the one we're looking at presently, so much more going on behind the scenes than we know. So much more going on behind the scenes. One theologian I, I read on this, James M. Hamilton says this, the prince of the power of the air, of that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan has engaged in a cosmic campaign to unseat the Lord of the universe to take from God the Father what rightfully belongs to him. Satan and his seed are at war with God and his children. Now that's an apt description of what we're reading here in Job. It applies to both the Daniel and Jude passages for sure. And it's an apt description of, listen, every single trial and setback that anyone in this room has ever gone through. It's more than about your trial. There's so much more going on. There's a spiritual battle at work. A battle being waged. And some of you might be dismissive of that even as I say it. Some of you might be skeptical about all of this spiritual stuff that I'm talking about and could it really be real and are there angels and devils having uh, these battles behind the scenes? And I think we ask those questions for this reason. It's because we're Westerners influenced by Western thought and philosophy. It's because the enlightenment has so colored the way we perceive the world and not for the better. It's because we're so rationalistic and we're so about all that matters is what we see. If it's empirical, if it can be experienced, if it can be demonstrated, then I believe it. And if it can't, it's not real. That's enlightenment thinking. That's Western thinking. And they would believe that to see anything beyond the material world is foolish. And really, it's foolish to believe that this is all there is. Really, that's what's foolish. And I've had the privilege on uh, three occasions to travel to Africa and I've come to really appreciate a people who aren't Western in their thinking and in their perspective of the world. And I'm speaking in general terms re really here about African thought, but they see much less of a distinction between the material and immaterial worlds. In fact, the way African thought goes is that there's an intersection between the material and immaterial worlds. And in that respect, I will say this, in that respect, Africans are far more biblical in their worldview than we are. And there's much we can learn. 
to see that these two worlds are colliding and intersecting every minute of every day. An African would feel the spirit, like Eliaphaz, would feel the spirit gliding past their face and would feel the hairs of their flesh standing on end. And it's so critical that we get this if we're going to steadfastly endure the trials and setbacks that come in our lives. Because Paul said it this way, to us, to the church, to, to, to us today, he said this, Ephesians six twelve. for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not in the material realm, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against uh, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. All of those references to the evil one and his demons and their influence in this world against the spiritual uh, forces of evil in heavenly places. To use a common phrase uh, for all of this, uh, there's more going on than meets the eye. This present darkness that you find yourself in, this trial or setback, well, there's an unseen battle going on even while you fight it in the material realm. And if that's true, and it is, then you must trust God for what he's ordained for you. Verse eight. So the conversation continues, right? Satan's been patrolling. He comes back. God asks him what he's been doing. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Of course he loves you. Of course he serves you. Look what you've done. You, you protect him. There's a hedge around him so that my demons can't get at him. You've poured out blessing in such extraordinary measure. You've made his life so easy and prospered him in every single way. Of course he loves you. It's not, by the way, an unreasonable argument. It's not an unreasonable argument. And so, so God says to him, knowing Job better than Satan knows him and better than Job knows himself even, God says, verse 11, oh sorry, Satan continues, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In essence, what happens here is, is uh, Satan proposes I don't know if you're comfortable with the imagery, but he proposes a bet. He proposes that they wager on this. So take it all away, God. Get rid of all the camels, the sheep, the kids, everything. Just wipe it all, all clean off the face of the earth. It's all gone now. And he will curse you. I bet you he'll curse you. Satan puts the wager down and then here's where the Lord responds. Verse 12, and the Lord said to him, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, probably pretty eager to get at it. God says to him, have at him. Take it all away. The only thing you can't touch at this point, you can't touch him physically, you can't, you can't harm him. 
But everything else is fair game. Satan leaves thinking he's going to win the bet because he passionately believes what he said to God. Now, when people ask the question, thinking of ourselves now again, why, why did God allow this to happen? Why do I have to go through this trial? Why is this happening uh, to me? It isn't a wrong question. Because in the question, inherently, what we're saying is we're, we're can I say it this way, we're blaming God for it. We go through a difficult season, we're in the midst of a trial, we just say, God did this to me. God, why did you do this to me? And some people might kind of step back from that and go like, it's, it's wrong, don't blame God for this. But actually, it isn't a wrong question because he did allow it. He did permit it. In fact, the point is right here. He ordained it. He ordained it. How do I make sense of that? How do I make sense of the fact that God, God chooses this for me? You see, because it was God who asked the question. Satan was just out patrolling, just looking at things. God is engaging in the conversation. Where have you been? And, and by the way, having patrolled the earth, it's God who raises the name Job, not Satan. It isn't Satan who's coming with the proposal. God proposes. God ordains. And the only way I can make sense of all of this going down the way it is is because I understand that sin actually entered the world and that was not God's choice. That was, that was our choice. That was humanity's choice. And our choice, sin entering the world, brought a curse upon this world with evil influencing and affecting everything around us. God didn't choose that, we did. And that compelled God, I'm, I'm grateful for this, I know you are too, that compelled God to to bring in a plan to redeem the world that we had brought a curse upon by our sin. God had to bring in a plan. So his plan was this. I'm gonna send my one and only son, Jesus. I'm gonna send him to this earth and he's gonna take on, he's gonna become humble like a servant and take on human flesh and live among us and feel everything we feel. The scriptures tell us he's acquainted with all of our griefs that he's tempted in every way like us and yet without, without sin. That he went to the cross, despising the shame, endured the cross. He took our guilt upon himself. The scriptures tell us that he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God brought in a plan that meant that he would experience everything that it means to be a human being. All of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the suffering, all of it. That was God's plan to reverse the sin curse that we had brought upon ourselves. 
Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection are the plan. And so at the end of the day, these trials that come upon us that God might choose for us, they're still the result of our choice to sin. You know, you can imagine that this scene in Job as it plays out, this single conversation that we get to see between God and Satan about a single man, Job, that maybe in light of this, that maybe this conversation hasn't happened just once. That maybe this conversation has played out hundreds of times, thousands of times, millions of times, billions of times. That this conversation has played out with a different name in the blank every time. Your name in the blank. Have you considered my servant? Fill in the blank. He's a godly man. I've blessed him. He's got a great marriage. He's got great kids who love Jesus. He serves the Lord. He's got blessing in his life. Everything's going his way. Have you considered him? Have you considered her? God's had this conversation billions of times with Satan about you. God's working out his plan to reverse the curse in this world once and for all. And your trials, my trials, the setbacks we endure, they're all part of his redemptive plan. The sickness that you've experienced, the death of a loved one, the financial setback. the abuse you suffered, the abortions you had, your time in prison, the divorce you went through, the years you lost. As painful as it is to say, as difficult as it is to believe, These were ordained by God for you because in a universal sense, we screwed it all up. We brought sin into this world and a curse lays over it. And he's fixing it. He's reversing it. He's redeeming it. And you need to trust him to fix it in his own way And in his own time, we need to trust God for what he's ordained for us. So how do I do that? How do I trust God? There's some things that I think is going to be helpful for us to believe. I have five of them here if you want to jot them down. Trust God by believing that, uh, first of all, and we've kind of laid this all down already, but God ordains trials and setbacks. You have to believe that. He initiates the conversation, as we said. He permits Satan to afflict Job. God orchestrates it. It's not uncommon to hear someone say, 
in the midst of trials. The devil's behind this, and that's true, but it's not the whole truth. God ordains trials and setbacks. And secondly, this, uh, Satan cannot touch God's people apart from God's permission. Okay, you're safe from Satan unless God gives permission. Satan, I would just put it this way, Satan's on a short leash. He's on a leash and it's a short leash. Uh, Don't ever, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, don't ever fear Satan. Fear God, he's the one with all the power. Okay, fear God, serve the Lord, respect him, worship him. Don't fear Satan. Satan can't touch God's people apart from God's permission. Third, uh, trials are not necessarily an indication of disobedience to God. Some trials are, some things that we go through are very definitely the discipline of the Lord because of sin in our lives. That's true some of the time, but not all of the time. And in this case, God had already said in verse eight, uh, none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man. These trials were not the result of sin in Job's life. Uh, Fourth, uh, when God bets on his people, it's a sure win. This isn't like wagering we do here where there's the possibility of winning and the odds are uh, this or that and that doesn't matter. Uh, The odds are 100% that God is gonna win when God's people get tested. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows. Uh, They're his, they're always gonna be his. Nothing's ever gonna change that. No trial, no difficulty, no setback. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, Uh, no one. No one can be against us. Not even Satan, as powerful as we think he is. Romans 8, 35 and 39, who can separate us from the love of God? Uh, No one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Guaranteed, 100%. God bets on his people, it's a sure thing. God knew that Job wouldn't fail in the face of these tests. Now I get that from our perspective, it's less of a sure thing. I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can handle this. The weight is is so much. I'm, 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 I'm questioning God, I'm... That's from our perspective, but please understand that in any trial and setback, no matter how dark and and deep you might think the valley is, God is with you and he will not fail you. And then uh, finally, this last one, fifth, um, attempting to get out from under the trial means opposing God's work, not Satan's. We need to believe that. It's a good time to kind of define what we mean by steadfast steadfastly endure is kind of the thing we're going after in this message and really steadfastness and endurance are really the same words so really what I've done is taken two synonyms stacked them together to make the point (laughs) that this is what God expects from us as followers of Christ and the New Testament word for steadfastness or endurance wherever you see that in in the New Testament it's that word that we've looked at many times the Greek word hupomene which is a combination of two words, which means if this is the trial and I'm under the trial, that I'm gonna remain under the trial. I'm not gonna try to squeeze out from under it. I'm not gonna try to escape the thing that God wants to do in my life. I'm going to hupomene. I'm gonna remain under the thing that God is doing. I don't wanna be found opposing God's work in my life. And I know how distasteful that sounds for those who have experienced very difficult life circumstances. But to be uh, really straight with you, I find this more comforting than less. 
I mean, I find it more comforting to know that the very difficult thing I've gone through was actually God's choice for me than to think somehow Satan's out of control and wreaking havoc that God doesn't have any power over. I prefer to know that my God knows about it, is in control of it, has even chosen it for me, and I may not get why he chose it for me, but I'm glad he did, and now I'm just trying to work that part of it out. But I don't want to think about having a God who's impotent over Satan's schemes. I don't want to have any thought about that at all. I like that I have a God who's aware in control and choosing what's best for me, for those around me, and for his greatest, greater purposes in this world. So trust God. Trust God. Trust God. If you're to steadfastly endure trials and setbacks, trust God and then remain faithful no matter what. Remain faithful no matter what. Okay, verse 13 is where it actually goes down. Up until this point, point, there's just been the back and forth, the conversation. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Four devastating trials come hard and fast all in a single day. If you continue reading through the prologue of the book of Job, which takes in chapter two as well, you'll find that Job survives all of these trials, but then um, Satan and God have another conversation and Satan is released to go and afflict him personally, health-wise, and it gets um, considerably harder for him. A lot came upon him, relentless uh, tragedies. In chapter 9, verse 18, uh, Job says, uh, he, referring to God, will not let me catch my breath. I don't know if that's been you. I've had some trials in my life, but I don't think I've ever had the kind of compounding trials where it's this thing and then another thing and I'm not over that before something else comes and four and five things going on in my life, all of which could fall under the category of a setback or a trial. That's what's going on with Job here. Can't catch his breath. Yet here's his response in verse 20 then. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. Now this is the normal sign of grieving. So he's, he's grieving what's going on. He just lost all his kids. His wealth has evaporated. I mean, he's essentially has nothing. He's, he's now a poor man. It's all been taken away from him and, and he's grieving and he's grieving hard. And that's okay. It was okay to grieve. It's okay to be sad about this. I don't want us to misunderstand anything in this message. 
or in this passage as being some kind of paint on a happy face and smile all the time and, 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 and just take it all uh, as it comes with uh, joy in your heart. If you've lost a loved one, suffered a miscarriage, if you've gone through deep and dark times, if you sat with a loved one who is dying or there's someone you're thinking of right now who you lost years ago and the emptiness hasn't quite gone away, then you should grieve. You should grieve hard because we live in a sin-sick world and we have not yet fully realized the advantages of the redemption of Jesus Christ that are coming to us. We await that day. We've sung of that day here this morning. But Job didn't stop at the grief. It was there. He's mourning for sure, but he didn't wallow in it. He didn't stop there. He didn't stay in his grief because the last two words of verse 20 really show where he goes with this and what his attitude is and and how his perspective is going to inform everything that's happened to him because it says, and worshipped. He worshipped the Lord. He attributed worth to his God. I've... I've been in many worship services sitting right here and looking at you while the worship happens and, and I've seen many times many tears flowing as you sing the words to the songs. I've been through enough myself to know that there have been many Sundays where I didn't want to come here. So I know that there are many of you who on certain weekends and the services are looming and you just go, the last place I want to be is in church. I know there might be some of you here this morning and you battled it out before you came today. This life is really hard and I'm not sure I can be there. But, but you, did, you did what Job did right here. I'm grieving, it's hard, I'm hurting I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I'm going to be there. And some of you, maybe even today, as the worship songs were being sung, were, were singing the words through tears. And I commend you for that. Because you got here with God's people. The book of Hebrews tells us, don't forsake the assembling of, your, uh, of yourselves together. Because we need this. We need to realign ourselves. We need to rehearse the truths of God's word in the midst of the trials. We need to say these words of worship. Remain faithful no matter what in worship. And then this in attitude. He says these powerful words in uh, verse 21, which are fairly familiar to most of us. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. I came into this world with nothing. I'm leaving this world with nothing. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord gave me stuff. He gave me a lot of stuff. I got to enjoy it while I had it. But even while I had it, it wasn't mine. It was still his. He gave it to me. Now he's taken it away. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed 
be the name of the Lord. He's still awesome in every way. And I still have him. Which is better than all of the rest. And it's really at this moment, you can write it in the margin of your Bible, right beside verse 21. This is where Satan loses the bet. Because Satan's wager was this. If you take it all away, Job will curse you. And quite the opposite. He doesn't curse him. He uses the word bless it. He blesses the Lord. Job's aligning himself with God rather than cursing him. And he's really saying, and I wonder if you could say this in the midst of your trial. What God chose for me is fine with me. What God chose for me is fine with me. I mean, in chapter two, when the whole thing repeats itself again and he goes through the further trials, verse 10 says to his unhelpful, foolish wife, shall we receive good from God and and shall we not receive evil? Are we gonna be the kind of people who are good with God as long as he's good to us? Are we gonna be those kind of people? As long as God's blessing me, I'm for God. But as soon as he allows anything hard, we're out on him. Are we fair weather Christians? Is that, is that the kind of believers we're gonna be? Are we gonna be taken in by the prosperity gospel nonsense that says, oh, you're a follower of Christ and God's gonna pour out wealth on you and you're always gonna be healthy and if you don't have that, that's your problem. God's ready to give you both of those things all of the time. It's like, I want to grab the Bible of a prosperity preacher and check to see if the book of Job is there or not. Not going to be fair weather Christians. Job says, no way. And really, it's this attitude that affords him a great opportunity for the gospel. To witness to who God is in his life. And, it, and it's crazy really when you think about it. Most uh, scholars would say that Job was a contemporary of Abraham who lived around 2000 BC. And so 2000 years uh, to the time of Christ and 2000 years since the time of Christ. So 4000 years we've been talking about Job. I mean I just think that his life has pretty much stood the test of time. Don't you? 4000 years of talking about a man who was faithful to God in the face of trials and setbacks. Every trial is an opportunity before God to honor and glorify him. Every trial is an opportunity before unbelievers to witness to God's sustaining grace and care. Look how they're going through that. How does a person walk through something like that with the joy of the Lord in their heart and with such a peace? Unbelievers are watching every trial and opportunity before fellow believers to be an example and encouragement to the body of Christ. In fact, speaking of Job, uh, James said this in the New Testament, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And when we see that, and when that mercy and compassion begins to flow through God's people, I mean, that's just encouraging to the entire body. Every trial is an opportunity before ourselves to see our own faith increase. Every opportunity, I I just love this, every trial is an opportunity before Satan to humiliate him and to show him that we're God's children and we will always be God's children no matter how hard he hits us. We're always getting up off the mat. 
faithful in worship, faithful in our attitude, and then faithful in holiness. Verse 22, in all of this, uh, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He was faithful to the end no matter what he faced, believing God was choosing what was best for him. And if we're to make ready for whatever God has chosen for us uh, this year, next year, until we die all of the time in between, then we must, like Job, steadfastly endure every trial and every setback for his glory. And uh, just super appropriate at this time that we would sing the words that have come out of the book of Job, a song that we haven't sung for some time. But um, we're gonna stand together and sing, blessed be the name of the Lord, amen? All right, let's affirm these things together and proclaim our allegiance to him. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.